This is David Suisa. We have a special episode today with Yossi Klein-Alevi, who's on the cover of the Jewish Journal with his new edition of Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. And he'll tell us all about the, the response on the book and the letters from his Palestinian neighbors who are now published in this new edition. So lots of good stuff to discuss. But first, we'd like to welcome our sponsor, Venture Leather, which makes quality but affordable handmade leather goods with a purpose. Do you want to look great, but also know what you buy is making a positive impact on the world? Venture Leather works with small-scale herders and artisans in both Uganda and India to make the highest quality products while providing jobs in impoverished communities. Not only is Venture Leather intentional about its supply chain, but 100% of the profit from every purchase is invested back into these communities. Every purchase from Venture Leather helps to create small venture capital fund for aspiring entrepreneurs around the world, hence the name Venture Leather. So go to VentureLeather.com and use the code David, my name, for 15% off your order and start making a difference today. Venture Leather, helping you make a difference in the world. Okay, this is David Suisa. Welcome to my podcast. If somebody would ever ask me what is the most intractable conflict of the past century, I think I would say the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And here today in the studio, perhaps the most knowledgeable or certainly someone who has spent several decades studying this conflict and recently written about it, my dear friend, Yossi Klein-Alevi. So great to be with you, David. <laughs> and I'm, I feel like uh, humbled by this uh, conversation we're going to have today is because the, the subject is so immense. And you and I, over the years, we've spent so much time talking about it. And I, I've read thousands of articles and analyses on the conflict, and we have... Had, we always seem to end up in the same place. <laughs> you know, and it's just so immense. And last year, you, you kind of, you know, you, you, you came at the Jewish community in America like a kind of a hurricane with your book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. And I was trying to figure out before today's podcast why you struck such a nerve. Uh, why do you think you struck it? Let's hear it from you first, and also for the two or three listeners who don't know about the book. So uh, the book is a series of letters written to an anonymous Palestinian on the hill across from where I live at the edge of Jerusalem. I live in literally the last row of houses in Jerusalem in a neighborhood called French Hill. And we're separated, French Hill is separated from the next hill, which is the beginning of, of the territories, the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, call it whatever you want. <laughs> And we are separated by a concrete wall, the security barrier. And Jerusalem is, a, is an actual wall. And the book really began as a, um, say, a late-night, one-way conversation in my head. When I'd get insomnia and I would look out on the lights across the way, I would have this, these conversations in my head with, with a Palestinian neighbor uh, who I could see but didn't know. And that really, I think, is, is normative today in Israel. Palestinians and Israelis do not know each other anymore. We have no relationship. 
And when I was trying to get the book published, uh, every publisher in New York said the same thing. Uh, find a Palestinian partner, uh, exchange letters, and then we'll publish the book. And my response was, I can't write it that way. I have to write this as a one-way communication, first of all, because that's the, a reflection of our reality. We, we don't have connections anymore. I used to have connections with Palestinians before the Second Intifada. That was erased. And then the wall just confirmed that. But more, more to the point, the reason that I, I, I try to explain to publishers why I have to write this as a one-way series of letters is because I didn't want to dilute the Israeli narrative. And this book is really an attempt to explain how this conflict looks through Israeli eyes to, to Palestinians. And, and, and I didn't want to dilute it in the context of a dialogue or, or, or a debate. I had to put out our narrative because it's being erased in large parts of public discourse. And yet it became a New York Times bestseller. And what the publishers were telling you is if you want this to be a New York Times bestseller, this is what you need exactly. to do. You need exactly. to have it back and forth. Yes. And for some reason, it still became a New York Times bestseller. And, 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 I, and I, I can just venture a possible reason is that you included in your own way the other narrative. There was, I think that's a really good insight. You know, that, that what, what I tried to do in the book is two things. Um, to, to express empathy for the shattering of the Palestinian people, for Palestinian suffering, and to uphold the integrity of the Zionist story. Now, those two positions are usually antithetical in Jewish community conversation, as you well know. Right? If, you, if you express empathy for the Palestinians, you're leftist. And if these days, if you defend the narrative, you're, you're, you're rightist. And so to hold empathy and, and, and strong, a strong affirmation of Zionism at the same time was counterintuitive. And I think a lot of American Jews appreciated breaking out of that, that just really boring and predictable Jewish conversation where, where you know, any of us at this point can say any of the lines from the left or the right. It's, 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 it, we, we know those arguments so well. And so this book was an attempt to try to create a new language, a new language about, about Israel and Zionism, and a new language in which Israelis and Palestinians can model a deep disagreement with respect over irreconcilable narratives. You know, I find that when someone on the right says something to please the left, it's like they're throwing a bone and it's pretty transparent. Mm -hmm. And when someone on the left says something to please the right, they're also throwing a bone mm -hmm. just to sort of to show, make the gesture. And I was speaking to somebody about your book recently, and he said, Yossi means it. You really mean yeah, it. I, I you do. were not throwing <laughs> bones, you know, to just patronize and please the Palestinian side or, or the left wing of the conversation. You really, really mean it on both ends. Look, I've, I've, lived, I've lived this, com this conflict for almost 40 years as in, in Israel, uh, and I've lived it in very different ways. Uh, first of all, as a protagonist, 
I made Aliyah, I moved to Israel, I joined a particular side. I, I lived this as a soldier. I served in, in, in Gaza and the West Bank. Uh, I've lived it as a journalist, reporting on the conflict, trying to understand it objectively, and I've lived it as a reconciliation activist. And I use that word rather than a peace activist because really it was the, the people-to-people side of, of this process that I've been focusing on all these years. And so I've, I've lived this conflict from so many different and even opposing places. You know, a journalist is supposed to be objective, a protagonist, you're defending your side, a reconciliation activist. And, and the more that I enter the conflict from all these different perspectives, the less I understood how to go forward. The more, the more trapped I felt and the more frustrated I felt. And David, you'll really appreciate this because I, we've spoken about this for years, is the more frustrated I have felt with the certainties of left and right. You know, oh, really? You, you've got this all figured out. And, 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 I'm, and I'm, I'm not being rhetorical when I say that the more deeply I immerse in the conflict, the less I know what to do about it. Well, I mean, that's a perfect segue to the new edition of your book, uh, which includes letters from the Palestinian neighbors. And I got to tell you, it's pretty chilling. And, How uh, so? Can you say well, more about that? First of all, I want to just put in a plug because we, we will be making a major launch of the book at the Jewish Journal. That's great. Thank with, you. With, with your piece. And this interview is going to coincide with that, with that story. And one of the reasons we're doing it is because I feel if I had to give one book to anybody to really understand the conflict, I'd give them this new book, this new edition. Um, and as I was reading it, there was parts of it that really upset me. Uh, because there was almost like a denial of the Jewish narrative, of the Zionist narrative as well. It was, there was so much chutzpah in these letters, and I was thinking to myself, how could Yossi agree to publish these? <laughs> how can you do that? You know, it's amazing. This is really tough stuff to hear. Not only but giving them the last word of the book. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was really you know. difficult for me to hear it, although I, I must say that the tone was respectful. Yeah. Uh, but there was substance in there that I found, you know, vexing. Um, and then, and there's 10, and they're all kind of different. They overlap. What was your reaction? How did you pick these letters? And give us a little background. So, look, I, I actually reacted differently because uh, what the first wave of letters that I got were, were hate mail. You know, we hate you. We're coming to kill you. The uh, army of Muhammad is coming to destroy you. And... Which all of which is is par for the course. That's the background noise of an existential conflict, uh, and so I tried to just put that aside. And then I started getting these long, thoughtful responses from Palestinians, which I really didn't expect. And as you know, as you say, there's a lot there's a lot uh, that's difficult for for an Israeli for a for a, a Jewish lover of Zion to 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 take in, but what I what I so much appreciate about these letters as a body of work, and I and I relate to them as a you know fifty pages of responses. First of all, their willingness to engage with an Israeli, which is not something that uh, that you take for granted these days. 
And secondly, the fact that they were all willing to engage with the premise of my book, which is that this is a conflict between two indigenous peoples. And each people believes that it has the stronger claim. I certainly believe the Jewish people's 4,000-year claim uh, is far more compelling. But I understand why the Palestinians would turn that around and say, yeah, but we were here when you showed up. And so I understand that there's a counterclaim. And they're willing to engage in the premise of that book, which is that this is a conflict between right and right. Uh, which is a um, which was the title of an old book by Israeli novelist Aleph Beit Yoshua, between right and right, and that and and ever since I read that book years ago, that has really become kind of my my uh, lodestar for for understanding this conflict, and so here's a group of Palestinians who take issue with so much of what I write, who some of whom claim that Israel was not an existential threat on the eve of the Six-Day War, and that Israel started the war uh, as a as a as a And as it was a land, planned. A land grab. It was right, planned. and they literally, and they start now, quoting so I, listen, generals. You know, exactly, yeah. So, so first of all, I know who they're quoting, and I know where what the context is. And look, I wrote a book about the paratroopers uh, who fought in Jerusalem in 1967. So I spent years with these guys. And one of the most powerful experiences that I had was sitting with Arik Achmon, who's one of the main characters in Like Dreamers. And he was the, the, um, the paratrooper brigade's, um, what would be the English uh, term, the, the, the chief intelligence officer of the brigade. And, and he said, you know, I, I said, how did, uh, you know, what kind of plans did the army have for, for invading East Jerusalem? And he just looks at me and he says, plans? There were no plans. I said, what do you mean there were no plans? Israel is living in a situation where half its capital is under Jordanian control, where you know war could break out at any moment. The IDF didn't have contingency plans. And he said, well, if those contingency plans existed, nobody told us about it. And, and in this one of these letters that I read, you know, apparently it's a plan that they kept perfecting. It was a plan. It was a plan. <laughs> they kept perfecting. So, you know, when, when, you, yeah. know, when you know the backstory of Israel and how Israel works and doesn't work, uh, the, 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 the critique, you know, the conspiratorial theories about Israel are so galling. So, but and, and, and you got some of that. You uh, got yeah, some definitely, of that. And definitely. And I got to tell you, I mean, one of them that I got was, I think one of one that stung me the most was, I suppose, Yossi, I suppose slipping some propaganda into your book was too tempting an urge to ignore right. or was it your intention all along? The last word I would use <laughs> for your book is propaganda. This was from Subi Awad. So now here's the thing. When you put that letter in the book, in a way he undercuts himself because if this were a propaganda book, you don't give a voice to the other side. You certainly don't give a voice to someone on the other side who's accusing you of being a propagandist. Mm. And so what I'm trying to do in this book is break the mold. Is there anything that stung you? I mean, I'm sure there is, but is anything that comes to mind in the letters that said, really? I mean, just like this example of propaganda or some kind of a claim. I like when, the, you know, I don't like when they, they're taught that uh, it's the claim of Jerusalem, of the Temple Mount. That... You know, I'll tell you what really upset me, and this, this, this 
appeared in a number of letters. I think I only used it in one, I, but, uh, but I got it in other letters that didn't necessarily appear in the book. And that's a quote from a line in Herzl's diaries where he talks about we may need to push across the border. We may need to push the peasants across the border. Now, Herzl's diaries extend, you know, over, it's multi-volume. And I had never come across that line. And I, I would guess that most Israelis have no idea that that's in Herzl's diary. Herzl was probably having a bad day, so that's in, in the diary. But to take that line and, and say, aha, here's the smoking gun. You see, Herzl intended on ethnic cleansing all along. Mm. Then you come to the Nakba, then mm -hmm. you come to the occupation in 67, mm -hmm. and it's one straight line. Now, my response is, you know, you can cherry pick and, and, and create your own fantasy mm. of a kind of a counter history, but how do you ignore the fact that Herzl wrote a whole novel called Altneuland, Old New Land, which is his vision of, of Arab-Jewish cooperation? So, okay, so he wrote this one line, mm -hmm. but look at what his blueprint was. And Herzl mm -hmm. was a playwright and a novelist, and, mm -hmm. and he, his, 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 his dreams always came through in his, in his fantasies. And so to, to erase that and just say, here's the line, and, and the fact that that line appeared over and over again in letters means that there's a certain pattern, there's a certain mindset out there, and, and, and it, was, it was depressingly instructive to see how our history is being deconstructed and, and reconfigured into something uh, sinister. So that was really upsetting, but that's, but that's not my main takeaway from these letters, David. My main takeaway is that here's a group of courageous people who, for all of the profound disagreements we have over narrative, are willing to accept the premise that the Jewish people is indigenous in this land and are willing to say so publicly and affirm that. And if you think of what the discourse increasingly is like on American campuses. And grudgingly in some cases. Doesn't matter. Right. Doesn't matter. Of course right. grudgingly. But right. uh, look, let, let me read to you one, one passage But here. before you do, i got to read you this one. I can still hear the echo of my grandfather's stories about the glory of the olive trees in his home. That's the one I wanted to read to oh you. Oh, my God. Which had to flee in 1948. <laughs> you know, my grandfather planted a, a seed of love for my country that has grown to be a strong tree in my heart. And I, I just found some of the language was so refreshing. Beautiful, beautiful language. It, you know. It's, but I want to read to here. you what that same letter, but a little bit further down. For my grandfather, the right of return to what is now the state of Israel was the only solution to the Palestinian refugee problem. For me, the issue is more complicated. I need to honor my grandfather's story, but still have ownership over my future. I must separate his past, my past, from the future, and here's the here's the line: separate the right from, from the return. return. Now listen, yeah. you have Palestinians willing to say that. Now I don't know how many. Here's one. Let's say it's one guy. Yeah, uh, he's my partner. Yeah. I don't. I can't make peace with one person. Can I have but my I book can, back, please? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 but you know, I can model a conversation, 
And that's all I'm trying to do here. Well, I think the most powerful line for me, Yossi, is what you just, speaking of the Jewish community here in America, uh, like the model, a respectful argument over competing narratives. Right. That's really kind of a powerful collection of words because you're admitting that it's an argument. You're admitting that the narratives are in not clear just competition. In, not, not just in competition. They, they are irreconcilable. Mm-hmm. We disagree with the Palestinians from the very origins of this conflict until last week's fighting on the Gaza border. Well, you just took the conversation so much further with your book, Yossi, because up until you, it was mostly the gestures of courtesy and the language was civil and mutual recognition and, and let's disagree without being disagreeable. There were so many cliches, but you took it to let's really, really listen. Let's really understand. Let's go as deep as we can go to explain our narrative and let's give them a chance to go as deep as they can go to really understand the narrative. And this is what I went to as I read the letters. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I felt in a way like I haven't heard this kind of language ever. I've read thousands of pieces on the conflict, thousands. And as I was going through the letters, I was thinking, like I was mentioning earlier, this is not think tank language. Mm-hmm. This is not commentary language. This is not language you read in a, in a column in a Jewish paper. Every one of these letters startled me for exactly that reason. They were written from a deeply personal place, as is my book. And, and so I can hear a Palestinian narrative if it's not coming at me, you know, in slogans, in, in, with threat. Tell me your story. I agree with you. This is the, from, I think, the second letter. I agree with you that the occupation will only end when the majority of Israelis believe it should. And that will not happen until Israelis have dispensed with the belief that a Palestinian state will likely be irredentist and itself a potential existential threat to Israel. This requires vigorous opposition to the misinformation on the Israeli side of the historical narrative. There's such a struggle here There's a tremendous in that paragraph. Struggle. Tremendous, tremendous. But, but these are people I can talk to. These are people I can argue with and listen to because I know that they're ready to listen to me. Every one of these people read this book. And yet a few of them had to be anonymous? That's part of the tragedy of Palestinian society. None of these people wrote a letter that should be in any way considered uh, a, um, an act of treason mm-hmm. against, against the Palestinian cause. Every one of these people are loyal Palestinians. They uphold their people's narrative. They love their people's story. And yet, because they're willing to engage with the Israeli narrative, some of them felt they couldn't use their names. I think that's a really good observation because... We've seen so many, I mean, not that many, but we've seen, you know, people from the Palestinian side sort of celebrated in the Jewish world, you know, and they're like almost professional peacemakers. And they're there, and they're part of the organizations and so forth. You didn't go after those. These are not these people. Yeah, yeah. Maybe one or two, but generally, these are hardcore Palestinians who are incredibly embedded with their narrative. And somehow, some... Ice no, got for cracked. Me, for me, the, the, I had two criteria here. The first was a willingness to engage with my narrative, and the second 
was you as a Palestinian need to be coming from a strong Palestinian place because I want partners. I'm coming from a strong Zionist place. I need to have a strong I Palestinian th- partner. I feel like they were taken aback by your incredible emotion. I mean, you showed, you know, Middle Eastern passion in your book. And, Absolutely. And I, I Absolutely. wonder if that kind of resonated with them. It did. It with did. Them. I, I, I know it did. Look, some of these people have become friends. Some of them have been at my Friday night table. I have real relationships now with these people. We are in regular correspondence. And one of the things that, uh, that I think is related to what you're saying about Middle Eastern passion is uh, what Palestinian, some of the letter writers responded to was the strong religious sensibility of the book. Uh, one guy writes uh, in, in, in the letter here, uh, Yusuf Bashir, um, who was the former PLO congressional liaison in Washington. And, uh, and he's just written a very powerful book called Words of My Father, uh, published by Harper. We have the same publisher, actually, the same editor. And uh, Yusuf writes to me saying, uh, the fact that you speak a, a language of God made it possible for me to hear your narrative in a way that I was never able to mm-hmm. hear the Israeli narrative before. You said that in a mosque once, years ago. You, you were said, there. I was there. Right. I was right. there. I mean, this conflict is so deep that we need something as deep as God only, to enter only the Only God can help, us, can help dig us out of this. And, and because, because a sense of trust, it, you're a religious person, I'm a religious person. Okay, what does God want us to do in this situation? And, you know, one of the things that I've long felt about the, the irony in Israel uh, is that those Israelis who want a relationship with the Arab world, with the Middle East, are usually those Israelis who are least capable of having that relationship. They tend to be secular, uh, left-wing, Ashkenazi. Ashkenazi. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the, that's the peace camp. The Middle East isn't interested in, those, in that peace camp. The Middle East could really have a conversation with traditional, religious, Mizrahi, people who have an orientation, who, who belong in their, in their being. Speaking of indigenous. Yes. And yes. Who, many of whom speak Arabic. Yes. Less and less, you know, mm-hmm. that it's, as the generations go on and as Ashkenazim and Mizrahim intermarry, as we call it in Israel, you know, and then uh, it just be, so, so that's being diluted. But I'm speaking specifically about a religious sensibility. And, and the tragedy is that the religious community in Israel is by and large not at all interested in having that kind of conversation. But every so often... When you see an in, exception like in Hebron? When they did an iftar meal, what was that all about? Yeah, well, that just you a know. pure opportunity, uh, photo op. Let's leave it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. You see these, okay, like uh, your old uh, Menachem Froman. He was an example. Well, he was, really was an example, and and he he meant he meant it with his enti- entire being. And we're talking about a Haredi rabbi who was in the Tekoa. who was the rabbi of the settlement of Tekoa, and who gave his his whole soul to trying to bring Muslims and Jews together. He was my Rebbe in this work. He taught me. Is there any positive lingering effect of his presence and efforts? Yeah, every so often you come up, you come up, um, you meet people 
who were really were changed by him on both sides. And look, there's this very interesting organization called Roots that brings together settlers with their Palestinian neighbors, and that's a direct outgrowth of Rav Menachem's work. You know, what I, what I saw in the letters, Yossi, was almost pragmatism was desperately trying to come through because there's so much uh, emotion, the issue of honor, the issue of glory, the issue of humiliation. There was so much human emotion that was soaking all these letters. And yet the, the rays of hope that I saw was a little like pragmatism is kind of a boring idea when you compare it to glorious ideas of 2,000 years and this is my people and right. my grandfather and the olive tree and the key that he still has, you know. But I think what's interesting in what you're saying, David, is that pragmatism, uh, when it's left naked and cold on the negotiating table, doesn't resonate. But what resonated for me with these letters is exactly what you said, is the pragmatism struggling to emerge from within this passionate commitment to, to your people's story. And, and so what was so moving for me about their attempts, their kind of groping toward pragmatism, is that it's a pragmatism that's coming through the fire. It's not, you know, this sterile compromise that we're going to, to reach through negotiations. It's coming out of tremendous pain and say, okay, you know, I actually, this is my story. I really believe all the land from between the river and the sea belongs, is Palestine. But what can I do? You're there, which exactly mirrors what I write in the book. Exactly. I believe that between the river and the sea, it's all mine. It's the land of Israel. It's not the West Bank. It's certainly not occupied territory. It's Judea and Samaria. But, and that's my pain, uh, the pain of my pragmatism is that I can't have I can't have it all. You know, it's so interesting, Yossi. I think I've had this the first time I'm thinking this thought, which is a rare moment, because I think all the time, but pragmatist in this picture of the past few decades, they were really boring. They gave pragmatism a bad name. They had no romance. They lost the emotion. That's exactly the word. You That's know? right. And, and so you bring when religion it's naked, back. Yes, you bring religion back into the process you're bringing back the depth of, uh, of what we're really fighting about. And then when, and when I would see these flashes of pragmatism, you're right. It had so much more power. It's profound. It's profound. Then, and then that's why it's on its I, have, own. I, I, I have so much respect and love for many of these letter writers. There's almost an aesthetic quality to a, a, a conversation that must be respected mm -hmm. in a way. And I think the dialogue... Mm. And the conversation about this conflict has gotten nice. so dry, nice. yeah. either yeah. dry or cynical. Or just so, yeah, so where does the passion go? The passion goes to the opponents because they're the ones right. who are holding the integrity of the story. And fear and fighting back That's and right. just going on mm -hmm. campuses and, mm -hmm. and just fighting, fighting for the truth and so forth, which is really kind of dull. Um, but there's the, the you've blended in the book both in what you write and in the letters this intense emotion, this fire of emotion, where when pragmatism comes up, it gives you a genuine ray of hope. But there's an aesthetic quality to these letters yeah, it's... that even if I can, I disagree with them, 
I'm sensing a genuine effort from somebody who is so, so far from me. And that's kind of different. I think you've, you've helped me understand why I feel this is now a, 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 an important document with the, with the addition of the Palestinian letters. There, there, there have been attempts to model uh, dual narrative uh, accounts. Uh, there's a book, a very good book, that came out uh, a couple years ago by Palestinian and Israeli historians. One side of the page will be the Israeli narrative, 1948, independence. The other side will be 1948, Nakba. I can't wait to you not know. read it. So, <laughs> but it doesn't. It's so, it's, it sounds it's, so dry so, to me. Look, I think it's useful. You know, I think it's it's in an academic course. It's useful if only to to bring in the Israeli narrative, which tends to be to be erased. But but what we have here is this is a human document. This is coming out of people's souls. And, and, and that makes it very painful and frustrating sometimes and difficult and moving, moving. I found, I, I, I found these letters from Palestinians to be overwhelming in, in every way. Frust, you know, I share certainly some of the frustrations that you expressed, but also I, I fell in love with these letters. I think... You fall in love with them when you really respect and honor and appreciate and, uh, and feel the effort that went into it. And, and the goodwill, you know. I, I didn't know these people. These are totally unsolicited letters. And they felt that somebody had reached out anonymously, right? I just tossed this out. You know, Sarah, my wife calls this uh, uh, letters in a bottle tossed over the security oh, yeah. wall. You know, and... Uh, and it felt that way. And they're pretty raw. And they're raw. Yeah. I wonder if this is, you know, if this connects somehow to what we're seeing in the rest of the Middle East. Some of these Sunni countries having a pragmatic common interest with Israel. And despite all the animosity over the decades, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, you're seeing some kind of pragmatism come through that fire of animosity. And it's kind of changing the picture a little bit. I think it's really East. important. To, to, keep, to keep the regional changes in focus here. Because it's, it isn't anymore Israel and the Palestinians. Changes are happening. Who could have imagined Saudis, you know, reaching out to Israel? Uh, I was at a meeting a few months ago, a totally off-the-record meeting in Jerusalem. A, an editor of a Saudi newspaper Wait a minute, it. this is off the record? Shiny, make sure you don't <laughs> cut it out. Keep it in. Yeah. All right, no, no, this is not all. Okay. It, the meeting was off the record, ah, okay. but I won't say the guy's name. And, and he came to Jerusalem, and clearly it was uh, coordinated between the Saudi government and, and the Israelis. You don't have a, a leading Saudi editor showing up in Jerusalem on his own initiative. Uh, but it was under the radar. And I went to a meeting, it was a group of, uh, of people in Jerusalem, and he said to us, for the last 70 years, we've been lying about Israel. And I came here to learn the truth. Now, maybe that's just anecdotal, or maybe it's a harbinger. And, and I've also been getting responses from people in the Arab world, not only Palestinians. Uh, the, the book just got its first review in an Arab-language publication. 
Uh, it was one of the leading newspapers in Morocco, one of the dailies, and it was a front-page, terrific review of that's, the book. That's amazing. And and I heard there's going yeah. to be a review in, in one of the Saudi papers soon. The book with so, the letters? Um, no, no. Well, it was just the one-way Israeli narrative. Because I can tell you, I mean, I've been to Morocco. I was born in Morocco, I was raised in Morocco, and one of the things you hear constantly is they don't mind the word Jewish. But they yeah. do mind the word Israel and Zionist, especially. Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty. So this is so this is taking the word Zionist, and and forcing Arab readers, Palestinian readers, to deal with it. I wonder if there's some kind of cognitive dissonance because uh, Zionism and Israel has been so scapegoated and undermined and demeaned and demonized for so long. I wonder at some point when with the internet and when they see what's really going on in Israel and these letters, if there's going to be some kind of a second, you know, Arab Spring where the quote, the line, you lied to us, because in a way they really did. They being the, the dictators who were constantly using Israel to distract from their failures. And, and I don't want to sound like I'm really pro-Israel, although I am, but there, there, there's a truth to that. There is, but let you know, you to, know? Put it, to put this in the context of its of its current moment, uh, we are facing a new Israeli government uh, that doesn't even make a pretense anymore of being interested, even in the long term. That's really in disappointing. Finding, in finding, by the way. in finding an agreement, and uh, and we could be facing a new reality where where parts of the territories will be annexed uh, by Israel, which to my mind would be a disaster. It will it will be accelerating our our slide toward a one state. I don't call it a solution. I call it a dissolution, mm. because a one state is 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 the end. I I fear, is God forbid the end of 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 a Jewish majority state and uh, or a democratic state. So I, I I think that that the book is coming out at a very complicated moment. On the one hand, it's true that even if we had a far-left government in Israel, we probably still would not be able to reach an agreement with the Palestinian National Movement because it's not about, in the end, resolving the consequences of 1967. It's about 1948 and the existence of Israel in any But we'll else. never know that when we have a right-wing government who keeps saying no. And so they keep saying no. And Israel's strength in the past was that we always said yes. And that's changing. And I think we have to own that and face what the possible consequences of that are. So it's a it's you know, it's it's such a strange moment where we're seeing cracks in the wall of hostility in the in the Sunni world. And at the same time, our on our side, those forces that are least interested or able to uh, to try to find our place in the Middle East are on the ascendancy. And you're you're as realist as any far right winger I've ever met. Nobody can out realist you, and yet you didn't let that stop you from pushing forward with some kind of hopeful effort. You know. Look, I, you know, it's I I wouldn't even use the word hope. Hope, hope is a very American word, you know. Oh, I'm so proud to be American. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and no, I mean it. In, in Israel, no, it is. 
in Israel, we don't really think about hope. It's, it's like you, it's one day at a time. You know, the only time I ever get questions from audiences about what do you think is going to happen in 10 years in Israel is in America. Israelis never ask that question. I have a better way of phrasing it to start it right now. You saw ahead of you a journey that might be a well, thousand that's steps. That's it. That's and it. you said, yes. I'm, I, that's not going to stop me from taking that first step. There's yeah. something very first step about this book I'm holding in my hands. Totally, totally right. You know, that's something a, that can crack the ice. That's a great way to put it. And, and look, I, I really believe in, in, um, in the counterintuitive gesture to just shake things up, surprise people, surprise the other side, surprise yourself. <clears throat> and um, 20 years ago, I went on a journey into Palestinian society. I, I was, uh, it was a journey of... Uh, a, a spiritual search. And you wrote about it at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Right. And it, named it, by the LA Times as a top religious book of the decade. So, if I may add. So, thank you. And it was a, a really an attempt to, to do that, to scramble the picture. And what happens when a Jew, an Israeli, wearing a kippah, shows up at the local mosque and says, Teach me. Tell me, tell me how you experience God's presence. And and it's, you know, I think about Anwar Sadat landing. You and I are old enough to remember that. Landing in, uh, at Ben-Gurion Airport. That shook things up. And who's there to greet him? Menachem Begin, the most right-wing prime minister in the history of Israel until that moment, right? Who could have ever imagined Begin Sadat? Today we take it for granted. Oh, yeah, well, Begin Sadat made peace. Right. The, until, the, until the moment that Sadat's plane landed, the Israeli army didn't believe that he was really going to step foot on Israeli soil. In fact, the chief of staff, Matagur, the commander of the IDF, had sharpshooters positioned at Ben-Gurion Airport because he feared that instead of Sadat getting off the plane, you would have Egyptian commandos coming out because you had the entire Israeli cabinet waiting on the tarmac to greet him. Wow. So the, the IDF op operative plan... Was watch out. Was watch out because they, this, is, this is a trick. And now, so today we just take it for granted. And yet 15 years later, you'll see, we thought we had the same thing on, uh, That's right. at, at the Rose Garden, right? It was that famous, epic, iconic image of Bill Clinton and Rabin and Arafat, and we got burned with the second one. The first one was real, and maybe the, the difference is that in the first one, they really meant it. I mean, they... In the first, you know, I think one of the Sadat meant it. Look, there was obviously a difference between Sadat and Arafat, although we would not have said that in 1973 or 1974. We said it only in 1977 when Sadat came to Jerusalem. So, you know, it's, there's so much of this is, is, retro, is retroactive. Also, there's a big difference between giving up a desert where you're really at a major distance and having two million you know, people in your living room, in your house. I mean, there, there Absolutely. people and, who and say, well, if we did it at Camp David with uh, Jimmy Carter, we can do it with the yeah. West Bank. It's a totally different totally ball different. game. And, and our conflict with the Palestinians is existential. Our conflict with the Egyptians was territorial. And Jordan as and well, Jordan. that it's peace a totally, agreement. It's a totally different difference. Right, right, problem. right. And it's getting 
more complicated, more complex, and you've taken that first step with this book, which has now become more than a book. Yeah, I, I feel that it's now a project, actually. I want you to talk about that and how you see this evolving here in America, uh, in our American conversation, whether it's on college campuses, in our communities, and so forth, and how we can use this. Well, so first of all, in terms of, in terms of, of uh, the primary audience, which is in the Middle East, it's the Palestinians, it's, it's the Arab world, uh, the... Um, the book is now really entering the phase of project. Uh, we're launching an Arabic language website this week for the book, and that's What's where it's called. Uh, it's it's letters to my neighbor .com. Wow, thank you, and the Arabic equivalent. Thank you. So it's it's in English and Arabic, and it will be in Hebrew. And when you say we, you mean like a social media team, the whole package. Yes, I have a work? social media team, Palestinians. Wow. And uh, who are uh, going to take this out, not only into Palestinian society, into the throughout Arab the whole world, Middle East, throughout the whole Middle East, pretty incredible. And um, and so that's that's the next phase. You know, if I can make a suggestion, find a donor and buy some ads on Al Jazeera. If you know what, if anyone is listening, <laughs> get in touch with David Suisa. He knows where to find me. That would be unbelievable, uh, Yossi. Totally, totally. Could you imagine an Let's ad campaign it. in Al Jazeera? Let's do it. They have only 300 million viewers. Let's do it. Yeah, because uh, I think you finally have something here that is just the exact opposite. Forgive the, the writer from Australia. The exact opposite of propaganda is this book. Well... If I well, can say that. Thank you. And, and so, so that's, I would say that there are a few tracks here of different kinds of conversations that I hope the book will trigger. Uh, so the first is within the, within the Arab world, Palestinian society. Second is within Israeli society. The book is being translated into Hebrew. And I'm looking forward to a conversation with my fellow Israelis about what the vision is for... Uh, for us, never mind for the Palestinians, do we really want this situation to continue another 50 years? What will we look like if this isn't, if, if, if we don't extricate ourselves from ruling over another people? It's almost like our conversation itself is so anxiety ridden. The conversation needs to be brought to a place of peace. You well, know, look, I, look, when I, I was reading the letters, I got to a place of peace. All right, I've heard they gave me their best shot. Yeah, yeah finally. These, these people have given us their best shot. Their Definitely. best shot, and Definitely. I realized, you know, I'm still standing. Yeah, I can. that's right. We can deal with these people. And but Israelis again, need to hear this. Yeah, they do. But again, you know, David, I, I'm, I, I write this in the introduction to the, to the new epilogue, this collection of Palestinian letters, and I really insist on this. I don't make any larger claim for what these letters represent than the letters themselves. And what I say there is that I set out to find partners on the Palestinian side with whom I could model a different kind of conversation. And I found those partners. But again, the emphasis is on modeling a conversation. And you got so many enemies, Yossi, and one of them is the anti-normalization movement yes. that has been so ingrained in Palestinian society, for better or for worse. Um, you know, an incentive to yes. keep the Jews and Zionism as entrenched enemies. That's a huge mountain to climb. It is. And 
one of the arguments that I try to make in the book, and I did find resonance in the in the responses by Palestinians, is that that is a fundamental misreading of the Israeli psyche. If you think that you're going to force Israel to concede by pushing us into a corner and treating us as the most evil country in the world, you really don't understand how Israelis react. Because the, 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 the biggest beneficiary of BDS is, uh, is the Israeli right. Because what they say is, well, you see, mm-hmm. they, all, they hate, no matter what we do, they hate us. Are, are we really the worst country in the world? Do we deserve to be treated as the worst country in the world? So we recognize this moment. This is a very familiar moment to Jews based on our history. Now, that's a very normative Israeli response. And unfortunately, there's way too much truth Absolutely. to it. Absolutely. I, I, I respond in the same way. And I write that in the book. Right. So, so, but it's really important for me, you know, to, to just emphasize that what this book is and what it isn't. This book is no more but also no less than a modeling of a, of a different kind of conversation. It's not, it's, it's, I didn't, I didn't find thousands of people who are ready to, uh, to have this conversation. I found dozens. Well, that's what I have. But in so many ways here in America, this incredibly deep and complex conversation that's embodied in the book and the letters has been reduced to three or four words on a pancart outside Mm -hmm. of APAC Mm -hmm. uh, policy conference at the ADL headquarters with a group of young Jews Right. from, could be If Not Now or Mm -hmm. J Street or Jewish Voices for Peace and... Although they're not all the same, and I don't want no, to think no, they're, that they're, they're not. They're, they're really not the they're same. They're not. But you see these these kind of this so-called new generation that reduces everything down to three or four words, like end the occupation. So, look, this book is also obviously aimed at young American Jews. And that was my hope from the beginning. And I have gotten really powerful responses from from around the country from young Jews who just felt this sense of gratitude to be given a language. From J Street? Oh, yeah. Last year, I spoke at APAC Policy Conference and then went to the APAC National Conference. It was almost back-to-back. You mean J Street? J Street, rather. What was the reaction at J Street? Well, I... um, Half the people in that room are, were friends of mine. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty small Jewish world. And they know that I'm not, my politics are not J Street. I'm much more center. Uh, and, uh, and I started the conversation by telling people in the room that this is not my natural comfort zone, but that, but that if I could reach out to my Palestinian neighbor, I can reach out to my Jewish brothers and sisters and uh, with whom I with whom I deeply disagree about many issues, and people in the room felt this kind of relief that it's all on the table. We know that you're not really one of the J Street, you know, you're not on the, the board of J Street here, and uh, and so it was. I'm I'm much more comfortable in in an APAC setting. That's, I'm I'm really intrigued though to see the reaction to the new book. The new edition. Yeah, this is what I yeah, would but, consider now. It's all on the table. But yeah, and I. But I have to say, J Street gave me a very 
warm and respectful hearing. Uh, they paired me uh, with, a, uh, with a Palestinian activist, uh, and uh, Huda Abu Al-Kub, who actually wrote a letter in the book. I asked her to, to write a letter. And she was terrific. And it was a very good, very good setting. Uh, the, the, the format that J Street suggested was that I read parts of my book to Huda, and she sits there and responds. Mm. So it was a beautiful interaction. And uh, look, I, I will go almost anywhere. How about to the left of J Street, if not now? I will not go. I, I, I said I will go almost anywhere. I will not go to an anti-Zionist Jewish group. Mm -hmm. It's true, because when I asked them, uh, are you Zionist? They said, we don't want to comment on that. I or, would not. Yeah. Jewish Voice for Peace, I wouldn't go anywhere near. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you a story. I, uh, just recently, I had a meeting of uh, Muslim leaders in, uh, I won't say where, but somewhere in the Northeast. And uh, I walked in to the, to the restaurant. It was a Middle East restaurant and uh, Middle Eastern food, and I, um, and I see that there's a group of, of Jews there uh, who turn out to be uh, Jewish Voice for Peace. And I said to the Muslim leaders, I said, this is an ambush, and I came here to speak to you, and we are on opposite sides of a divide, mm -hmm. and the very fact that we're, we're sitting together um, compels me to listen to anything and everything that you have to say to me. Mm. No holds barred. You can say whatever you want. I won't leave the table as long as you're willing to hear me. I said, but these people who you brought along here, Jewish Voice for Peace, these are my renegades. These are my apostates. They have no interest in And I have no, I have no intention of speaking to them. I turned my back to them and for the next two hours refused to answer their questions, and I engaged only with the Muslim leaders. And so not that, that what I heard from the Muslim leaders was any better <laughs> than, you know, in terms of, of hostility to Israel than what I heard from the Jews, but I, I will take it from the Muslims because in you a way felt, that I won't take it from the Jews. Because you felt they were listening? Because I felt that the very fact that they showed up, the fact that, that our communities are, quote, enemies. Mm -hmm. And uh, to engage with Jews who are there only for o only one reason, which is to undermine everything that I say in front of, in front of a Muslim mm -hmm. audience, that's not, that's not fair. That's, that's not a fair I think that's uh, a huge point. Uh, that's a huge point, and I think this is in, in many ways contaminated the whole conversation in America politically is so much of the dialogue is based on undermining the person you disagree with, and yeah. how do you? See, the other thing I would say is that uh, you know what I what I'm hoping this book will do in this country is model what a possible argument could be among Americans on on all kinds of issues, because in a way this book is countercultural to this particular political and social moment. It really is. You know, and it's a slow read. It's the opposite of soundbite. It's, it's the exact right. opposite of talking points. Yeah, you, yeah. you have gone all the way to the other side, Yossi. Yeah. It's not an easy read. And for people who are hopefully, who will pick up, I encourage you to read every letter yeah. from well, Palestinian neighbors. And for those of you who are really pro-Israel, 
and even those of you on the right, you need to read it even more because it's a painful read. But there's something cathartic about the pain. And, and there's also, a, there was also some, a, a kind of subliminal message that I'm trying to convey here uh, at this particular poisonous moment in the discourse uh, generally. And that is that you know, you're not supposed to a, a, you're not supposed to give your opponent yeah, any not. legitimacy. You're not supposed to, let alone give your opponent the last word in your own book. That's an act of generosity that that is is completely not part of this moment. And you just moment. put your finger on why I was able to handle it. Because I was holding in my book your forty thousand words. You know, which was a, a, a love letter to Zionism. So they came after that. If it was just their letters that I would have seen in the New York Times, it would right. have been incredibly incendiary. Yeah. And they're responding to that love letter to Zionism. And and, 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 they're it. and they quote acknowledge it. it. Acknowledge and they, it. And they keep quoting it. Absolutely. This is another thing I found in the letters. There was a genuine effort to take you on. Yes. And to quote you and yes. so forth. And so when you... When you treat people with respect, when you say to them, listen, first of all, I respect my own position. I'm not, going, I'm not coming here to, to, to surrender. I'm not coming here to, to, to slip my, my, my veins. I'm here to tell you what my story is, but I'm also here to listen to your story and to treat you with the respect that I'm asking you to treat me. And when you approach people in that way, you, you can get some very surprising responses. You know, there's a direct connection between this mindset that you're talking about and two major projects that have come out of your institute, Shalom Hartman, right? Over the past few years, I Engage, which has gone through all of America and in the synagogue and the Jewish groups and so forth as, as a way of talking about Israel, right? Bringing and, the community together over... A, shared conversation on values as opposed to rehashing all the political disagreements that we have. And then your Muslim leadership initiative that yeah. also came out of Hartman. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And the Muslim leadership initiative, which, which, uh, which I co-direct with Imam Abdullah Antepli of Duke University, uh, is this unprecedented experiment in teaching Judaism, Jewish identity, Israel, Zionism, to mainstream young Muslim American leaders. And I emphasize mainstream because these are, not, these are not fringe characters. They come out of the heart of the American Muslim community. And these are people who deeply, deeply resent Israel. And uh, It's kind of a real-life oh, yeah. expression of this book. Yeah, well, exactly. It's like and encounters I, rather than just letters. That, that experience gave me the... First of all, the language with which to write to to a Palestinian, because I've been I've been I've been teaching Muslim American leaders about Zionism in Israel now for seven years. And for those who don't know about MLI, can you just spend a, a minute on it? Yeah, it was uh, it was started in 2013. It was the initiative of Imam Abdullah Antepli, and the idea is to expose Muslim American leaders to the inner workings of 
Jewish identity, how Jews understand themselves, why Israel matters to Jewish, to Jewish identity, uh, that goes beyond the notion of Israel as a refuge and in response to the Holocaust. Uh, it is Israel as a 4,000-year connection. And that's what we emphasize in, uh, in MLI, the Muslim Leadership Initiative. And it was also the same approach that I use in this book. I don't talk about the Holocaust in this book until the very end. And when I do bring in the Holocaust, I talk about my own personal family experiences growing up in a, in a survivor family, uh, but not as victims, as survivors. And, and what we do in MLI is teach how the Holocaust has impacted Jewish identity. We don't teach the Holocaust itself. And the reason for that is very, is very important. And that is when Muslims hear you defend Israel in the context of the Holocaust, the immediate response is, why should Palestinians pay the price for what Europe did to the Jews? Mm -hmm. Well, we and saw that recently from absolutely, Democratic absolutely. Congress. Yeah. And so, and so our approach in the program is we, we're not here to teach you about the Holocaust. If you, if you want to learn about the Holocaust, go to the Washington Museum or the Museum of Tolerance here in L.A. Uh, we don't take our groups to Yad Vashem. If you want to go, you can go. We will not take, we may be the only group, the only program in the history of, of the state <laughs> of Israel that don't take its participants to Yad Vashem. And the reason for that is very simple, because we, we are trying to present a story of an indigenous people and its relationship to its land and a religious story. Because when you speak to Muslims, if you just tell a secular Zionist story, you won't get resonance. And, and so that's one of the things that I learned that I brought to this book. You have to tell a religious story. And what we do at Hartman is we, 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 we teach texts. That's what we do to all of our groups. We bring, we bring texts. And, and, and so one of the most moving things you'll see uh, at Hartman in Jerusalem are women in hijab sitting in the Hartman Beit Midrash in the study hall over a piece of Talmud that's arguing about uh, if, if a woman wants to move to the land of Israel, but her husband doesn't, can she divorce him? That's a very powerful text for Muslims. They say, you mean 2,000 years ago the rabbis were saying a woman could divorce her husband if she wants to move to the land of Israel and he doesn't? That tells you what the place of the land of Israel is in, in, in Jewish consciousness more than... than you know, than a hundred lectures about Zionism. And so the approach that we use in teaching our story is we expand the lens. We tell a 4,000-year story. And uh, this is something that, that much of the Jewish community still doesn't understand. When I go around and speak in, the, in and I just got this again on my latest uh, tour of the American Jewish community, when you speak about Israel, people in the audience will say, Israel is our insurance policy. And my response is, well, actually, no. Israel is not an insurance policy. It's a place. <laughs> it's a country. <clears throat> and, and it's a place that is the expression of a people's 4,000-year history. And, and the, we have an extraordinary story to tell that we're not telling anymore. And that story <clears throat> is how we lost the land but maintained the kind of a vicarious indigenousness with the land that we never gave up on. 
And wherever we were in whatever part of the world, we were vicariously indigenous to the land of Israel through the, the ways in which we lived the year cycle of the land, through the ways that we remembered our presence in the land and anticipated our return to the land. And that's a story, the Zionism of longing that we don't tell anymore. All we tell is the Zionism of need, is the Zionism of the insurance policy. And if you tell that story to Muslims, they'll say, very nice, we're glad that you have an insurance policy, but why should the Palestinians pay the premium? And you felt that longing, Yossi, when you moved to Israel. Well, that's the story. It's been, what, 40 years now? Almost, yeah. almost 40 years. And It's all about longing. You know, it's all about longing. And, and you, you don't leave America for the Middle East you know, to find safe refuge, you know, and that with, with Trump, with whatever else you're, you're facing here, Israel is not the insurance policy for American Jewry. It's still the Middle East, you know, and, uh, and, and the story of our love for that land and the, what that land means spiritually, how we understand that land, what do, what do we mean when we say that we are connected to the land, but we don't really possess it? What does it mean that every seven years the land was laying fallow and then every 49 years all, all debts were canceled? There's something in the nature of a sacred land that, that plays a kind of hide-and-seek with you where, yes, it's yours, it's not yours, it's yours, it's, it's not yours. You know, I'm, I'm really glad you were the first one to write the letters and then they responded that you represented sort of the Israel side. One of the things I noticed in the... Palestinian letters, they were almost emulating and modeling your own language. That's very interesting. That, that hadn't occurred to me. You but know, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. They were they were saying, well, you know, he sort of he did this kind of dance between two things, and he showed passion, and he tried to be reasonable. They were talking about the Palestinian longing, and not just you know and the they, politics. Boy, do they understand longing. Yeah. Yeah. And there was so much of that. I wonder, where does this go from here in terms of the publishing itself? Is there a possibility for more Palestinian letters? Is there a possibility for a response to their letters? Oh, absolutely. And an ongoing absolutely. journey? So that, that will take place, God willing, on the website. Okay. That will be home for what I hope will be a continuing, a continuing conversation. That we hope that people like uh, Bibi and Abbas will read. <laughs> Inshallah. <laughs> Inshallah. <laughs> On that note, uh, everybody, please look for the cover story in the Jewish Journal by Yossi Klein Alivi on the new edition of his book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, with an extensive epilogue of Palestinian letters and responses, which I hope everybody gets. So... Yossi. David, thanks so much. Yeah. Really, always great to be with you. God bless you. And you. Once again, we'd like to thank our new sponsor, Venture Leather. Don't forget to go to VentureLeather.com and use code David for 15% off on your order and start making a difference today.